We're going to uh, begin a series I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Are you going to take that home with you, Andrew? <laughs> he wanted to put more in, sorry. Oh my, it's one of those days today. Celebration. We're talking about increasing or growing in the flow of the Spirit. And I want to get started with that today. Uh, hmm. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge our need for you. You're the one who leads us in truth. Thank you that you open our eyes. We open our hearts to you. And we say, would you not just challenge us or inspire us, but change us? We're looking for a heart shift that we can grow in the flow of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I talked a little bit about this over the last few weeks and early on in January, but I just believe there's something of a growing in the, the flow of the Spirit, the supernatural. Problem is that the flow of the Spirit in the supernatural has always had a lot of opposition. There's always been a whole lot of opposition to the supernatural. We live in a culture that is anti-supernatural. We have a scientific worldview that basically says only what's natural is real. Uh, it, I won't give you the whole history, but it comes from Greek philosopher Aristotle. I'll impress you with my vocabulary. It's literally called Aristotelian empiricism. I have no idea what that means, but it actually just means that only what's natural is real. That's why I don't use those kind of words, because I don't even know what they mean. But that's part of our society. We live in something. But then there's also an opposition in much of our theology, both evangelical and liberal. I come from an evangelical background. Mary comes from a liberal background. Lee Strobel said evangelicals don't really miss the miraculous dimension of faith because they grew up without it. They're used to religion, focusing primarily on our devotional life and maybe even morality. I want to tell you, I was, grew up an evangelical, and that's absolutely true. We did not have any expectation of supernatural. I knew something was wrong as I grew up, but I couldn't articulate it. But I knew that there was something missing. Mary wrote, I'm a daughter of liberal theology. I realize that some of its overshadowing beliefs have rested on me without me realizing it, such as faith is, in, is internal, meaning God acts on our conscience, conscience, 
and inner life, but not on the outer world. Science can't explain everything outside. Religion is reduced to two spheres, spirituality and ethics. So we have this idea in our culture and in our theology that excludes the supernatural. Now, it actually was Plato who was a guy that discipled Aristotle, had this dualism that there was this spiritual realm and there was, well, there was the, the, the realm of God and there was the realm of man, but there was not, no connection. And so most of us have been raised in a way of thinking that excludes that middle. Most people believe in God. God's out there somewhere. But he doesn't actually interact with where I live. That's natural stuff. I've got to take care of that. Or science can explain that. So you have an anti-supernatural society. You have some poor theology. And then, unfortunately, we have some excesses. People that we see who move in the supernatural, but maybe they fake it. Maybe, okay, we're talking about the Holy Spirit touching someone, but we actually have to help the Holy Spirit and push them over. Nobody's seen that. Or people in that arena using that for financial gain. It's all about money. If you give money, God will do something miraculous for you. But in spite of all of that opposition, the Holy Spirit keeps breaking through. In spite of an anti-supernatural perspective, in spite of bad theology, in spite of excesses, the Holy Spirit keeps coming, showing himself, and there's something in spirit-filled believers that hunger for more. That's what we want to look at over the next few weeks. Now, let me add something else. I believe an anti-supernatural world without hope is primed for the gospel with the confirmation of supernatural signs. One supernatural breakthrough by God takes away people's arguments. You can't argue people into the kingdom. But I believe that the devil thinks he's winning. And if we look at the natural, we can think the devil's winning. But God has a plan all along that actually sets up a whole culture for a move of the Spirit. And I believe that we're in that place at that time. So, my desire over the next few weeks is to see a shift in heart beliefs that results in an increased flow of the Spirit that sees many people come to Jesus. I will talk about this as a whole sermon in a few weeks, but I believe you can't focus on the supernatural apart from the gospel. It's not about making people comfortable and happy as they go to hell. It's actually God breaking in and showing himself great so that people can come to know Jesus. You still with me?
Okay, here's my, uh, my legal disclaimer. <laughs> this is a huge subject. You can't reduce an infinite God into sound bites. We do that. Part of the reason why preachers do that is because we have a limited amount of time, but even that time, uh, sociologists say that you only remember about 10% of what I say anyway. So I have to repeat myself. So we resort to these little logos. Dreamwork makes the team, teamwork makes the dream work. Oh, problem is, while that might be true, if we reduce everything of team to something like that, we think we know something. You can't outgive God. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying there's a whole lot more to it. And we don't want to reduce the supernatural into sound bites. Now, the other side of that coin is that I have to break this up into smaller bits. And so that's probably my biggest challenge is to take what the Bible says and break it into small enough bits that I can fit a part of it into a 30 or 40 minute sermon on Sunday. And that has to make sense by itself. I can't just start and get halfway and just say, okay, that's it. You would think, okay, what in the world was he talking about? So, what am I saying? Please have patience. What I share will not be the whole thing. And some of you will have a much bigger perspective and you'll come and say, but you left this out and you left this out and you left this out. And I'm saying, yes, I did. I hopefully will get to that. And more over the next few weeks. So, let's get free to flow in the spirit. Okay? Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to be up front with you. I'm going to approach this backwards for the next few weeks. Instead of giving the ingredients for flowing in the spirit, I'll get to that. I want to tell you the hindrances to flowing in the spirit. Because when I get to the ingredients, I want you to be able to deal with the hindrances that you have. Okay? So I'm telling you that it's backwards. Normally I would do it the other way around, but uh, because it has to be in small portions, I want you to see the whole thing. Bottom line is that I believe Jesus wants every one of us to be free to flow in the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, from verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus saying, reading this, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. John chapter 14. Verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, 
he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. So the very anointing that Jesus had to preach the gospel, to set free the captives, to heal the brokenhearted, he gives to us. That's his expectation. There's about a thousand scriptures I could share with you about this, but we never get past my introduction. And today is almost all introduction, so. Galatians chapter five. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again to a yoke of bondage. But over in 16 it says, I say again, I, I say then, walk in the spirit. And you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And they are contrary to one another. So you don't do the things that you wish. See, God's desire is that we have freedom not only for life, but also to flow in the Spirit. There is a freedom that we don't need to be bound by religion and the values of the world, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come, but there's also a freedom to flow in the anointing of the Spirit. But there's an opposition Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Another way of saying that is the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing, and the forceful lay hold of it. Luke 16, 16, in the same... Theo says, a kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing in. Problem with this in the Greek is it's not very clear. It can actually mean two things. It can actually mean from the days of John the Baptist, people have been rushing into the kingdom. As he began to preach the kingdom, people have been rushing in. And they're forcefully laying hold of it. Or it can mean that the kingdom is actually overcoming opposition. Now, from the days of John the Baptist, the disciples of John came to Jesus. John was in jail. So either one fits the context. The bigger context is that there is an opposition to the kingdom. Way over in Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to get sidetracked here a little bit. Only because I like to. From the second verse, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat, or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Kind of get the feeling he wants you to know, I was fasting for three weeks. Three whole weeks. (laughs) 21 days. Not 20 days, three whole weeks. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of, yeah, a pause. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. That'd be scary. 
His arms and feet were like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell on them so that they fled to hide themselves. And therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor or strength was turned to frailty or weakness and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. How many of you have had that kind of experience where God shows up in your on your face, with your face to the ground, and you have no strength. Suddenly a hand touched me and made me tremble on my knees and the palms of my hands. So he's got up to his knees, his hands and knees, and he's trembling. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the word that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I've now been sent to you. While he's speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Sounds like he was a bit overwhelmed by the presence of God or of this angel or person or Jesus or whoever it was. Then he said to me, do not fear for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I've come because of your words but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I'd been left alone there with the kings of Persia. There was a warfare that was taking place. The situation is that they're in captivity in Babylon. Daniel has been reading and coming to the conclusion that this was a limited time frame. And he's asking God, what is the the answer? And he begins to fast and pray. He wants something more. Okay, all that, you can wake up now. Those who found that too deep, that's, that's... That's okay. I want to say this. I think there's three things that we see in the Bible that oppose the flow of the Spirit. And we're going to talk over the next few weeks. The first is the flesh. Galatians 5.17, we read, the flesh is opposed to the Spirit, and they're contrary to one another. The second is the world. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the influence of the wicked one. And then the devil. Ephesians 6, 11, 13, talks about putting on the whole armor of God that may, we might withstand the schemes or the wiles of the devil. Okay? There is opposition. Okay. Now let me change briefly. I'm going to change the metaphors because we started talking a few weeks about the flow of the river of the anointed God. So I'm going to change the metaphors, and we're going to talk about overcoming roadblocks, strongholds, and the demonic. Okay? That's what we'll cover over the next few weeks. Roadblocks being the flesh, strongholds being the world, the, the mindset of the world, and the demonic being the devil, the doors that we open to that. We're going to get serious here. So, all that was introduction to get to this point. I've been talking fast. I'll slow down. Roadblocks to the flow of the Spirit. I want to say that I stole this from uh, Richard and Kathy. 
in their class some of this. I've used a lot of their stuff. I've just said it a little bit differently. But uh, it, it, I thought it was wonderful. Roadblocks to the flow of the Spirit. The first one, roadblock to the flow of the Spirit, is unconfessed sin. What's unconfessed sin? See, when we come to Jesus, we confess our sin, but unconfessed sin is stuff that we hold on to. Sin that we hold on to that we don't actually want to give up. I really like this. I enjoy this sin. So I don't want to give it up. Nah, nobody knows. Except that it becomes a roadblock to the flow of the Spirit. And we say, how come I pray for people and they don't get healed? Unconfessed sin is things we hold on to, but sometimes it's things we don't know are sin. What does that mean? See, what we need to understand is that sin is what God says is sin. Not what the world says isn't. Too often we've listened to the voice of the world and we say, ah, it's no big deal. For instance, sex outside of marriage. We live in a culture that says, that's okay. You can have sex outside of marriage. Everyone does. It doesn't hurt anyone. And we begin to convince ourselves that it's not a big deal. But the reality is, God established this wonderful thing of sex so that when two people are married and engage in it, there is a soul tie, there is a connection that takes place. More than just physical. And when we engage in that outside of marriage, when that relationship is then broken, we're actually end up losing part of our soul. Mary has a great illustration of this. She takes two pieces of paper and she tapes them together and then she separates them. But they never separate where the tape is. One of them is always torn. And we say, oh, it doesn't hurt anyone. But what I'm telling you is it does. And the problem is it creates a roadblock to the flow of the Spirit. We listen to the world. Now, you could probably think of dozens of things that the world says is not sin. In fact, Isaiah talks about woe to those who make evil good and good evil. And that's what we're seeing in our culture, a whole shift from what for thousands of years has been acknowledged as good is now becoming fringe or crazy. And for thousands of years, what has been acknowledged as evil is now becoming accepted and celebrated. And then we're the ones who are on the wrong side of history because there's this progressive approach when the reality is 
We're on the right side of God. I'd hate to be on the right side of history and the wrong side of God. So how do you deal with unconfessed sin? Just that, you deal with it. Very simple. You admit it and quit it. It's called confess and repent. Confess is admit it. I have to agree with God. This is sin. 1 John. Chapter 1. From verse 1, actually, start with verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What happens to just be nice, Russ? What happens to just tell people how loved they are and how wonderful? And If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now this isn't saying that everybody's seeped in sin. He was writing to a context that was this whole concept of Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed in a special of understanding of special knowledge and that there was this spiritual realm and it was pure and the physical realm didn't matter. There was no such thing as sin. No matter what you did in the flesh, it didn't affect the spirit. I actually believe later on that Jesus actually never became flesh. He walked around as a spirit because he would have been something different. And so they basically said, no matter what you do, it's not sin. Sound like the strategy of the devil? We're going to convince you that this isn't sin. And that's what he's saying. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're actually agreeing with the deceiver. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Because his word says very clearly, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous outside of Jesus. No, not one. Oh, but, but maybe I'm the exception. No, 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 not one. There's none righteous, all except Russ. No, no, not one. All have sinned, except for Lance. No. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Very quickly, there's another roadblock to the flow of the Spirit. 
And that's unforgiveness. Matthew 18, from verse 21 to 35, talks about this, and Jesus tells the story of the guy who is in debt, and he asks for mercy, and he receives it, and then he goes out and he throws the guy in jail because he owes him a little bit of money, and he doesn't let him out, and the guy he was in debt to, the master finds out and throws him in jail, and when the story ends, he's still in jail. He's talking about forgiveness. See, the bottom line is sometimes we're not the sinner, but we're the victim of someone else's sin. When we talk about unconfessed sin, we're talking about us, what we do. When we're talking about unforgiveness, sometimes it's not what we've done, it's what someone else has done to us. The problem is then that by dwelling on that and holding on to it, it becomes a poison that eats us up. Someone once said, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Now, as either Kathy or Richards said this, I'm not sure where they got it from, so I'm going to attribute it to them. And I thought it was great. Forgiveness doesn't make them right. It just makes me free. Forgiveness is a releasing them to God to deal with. Understand this, forgiveness is a choice. What forgiveness isn't, forgiveness is not pretending that something never happened. Oh, there was nothing. Oh, just forget it. Oh, it was nothing. How often is that the response that we hear? It's not pretending something never happened. There is a spiritual impact and there is a guilt that when I forgive someone, I am actually separating myself from that. So I can't just ignore it. I have to forgive it. I can't just sweep it on the carpet and say it was no big deal. Ah, just forget it. No, I forgive. Forgiveness, as we're talking about here, is not trusting that person again and putting yourself back in the situation where they hurt you. There is something the Bible talks about that in their repenting and you forgiving, but that depends on them responding to the Holy Spirit, and then I can trust them again. But I can release people and release myself from that without their repenting, but that doesn't mean I have to trust them. If you were the victim of someone else's sin, many of us think forgiveness says I've got to pretend like it never happened. And then I've got to treat them as if it never happened, and they're just going to do it again. And that's just stupid. And most of us know it's stupid. But that's what we think of when we think of forgiving someone when we're the victim. You don't have to trust them again. Now, as an aside, 
there is a point where if they're actually repentant, if my brother sins against me and repents and comes to me, I forgive him and we're restored in the fellowship. Okay, but without repentance, even God is not restored into fellowship with us without repentance. We'll get into that at another point. It's simply releasing them to God to deal with. So what does this mean? How does this apply to us? I'm going to tell you two things. First, is this wonderful thing in the Bible called baptism. Baptism is following Jesus and it's as we go under the waters of baptism, we are actually dying to ourselves and our old life, cutting off the past, and being raised as he was, resurrected. We're not actually resurrected, we're just raised to new life. Let me tell you, baptism is not an optional extra in the kingdom. If you've never been baptized as an adult, a follower of Jesus, then you need to be baptized. Let me just, just give me a little bit of grace here. I'm running out of time. Part of the teaching that some of the church has is that we can baptize children and make a decision for them. That's not a biblical concept. It comes from the Catholic Church that has affected much of the rest of the church, but it's basically the idea that if we baptize them as children, there was a belief that they were actually, if they died, they would go to hell, and so we need to baptize them so that in case they died with sickness, all the sickness that, that there was, they would go to heaven. Uh, it was the idea that the church controlled salvation rather than Jesus controlling salvation. We know that's not the case. You can't make a decision for someone else. It is your decision to follow Jesus. Nobody can. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christian. You're not a Christian because you come to church. I've said before, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Okay, you might enjoy it, you might like the people, but until you actually come into relationship with Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus. Christianity is not a religion. We talk about the Christian religion. Christianity is a relationship. A, the word Christian literally means a follower of Christ, Christ-like. Someone who follows Jesus. Now, why am I saying all that? I have no clue, except maybe someone needs to hear it. So baptism isn't optional. If you want to grow in the flow of the Spirit and you've never been baptized, don't mess around. Simply make the decision to follow Jesus and get baptized. If you haven't been and you would like to be, talk to Richard. Richard, would you just raise your hand here? Richard's not the baptism guru, but he keeps the baptismal deal that we use at his house. So by extension... He's become the guru of baptism. No. Help out. 
Second application is deal with roadblocks. What do I mean? When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, confess it and repent right now. Don't put it off. Folks, I'm a believer that you can respond to truth while I'm preaching. And you don't have to wait till a altar call afterwards or a ministry time. You just simply say, God, I hear what you're saying. I respond right now. I can be changed. It's not someone praying for you. It's you're responding to truth. But wherever you are, if the Holy Spirit identifies something, he's the one who convicts of sin. It's not anyone else. It's not condemnation. The Holy Spirit's on your side. If he convicts you, respond. Admit it. Confess and repent. Turn away. Come to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you. That's the greatest truth of the Bible. The second is, choose to forgive. Right now. If you've been the victim of someone else's sin, forgiving them doesn't make them right. It doesn't say that you think they're right, because they weren't. It says that you just release yourself from the connection that you've had with them. How do you do that? You simply make a choice to declare, I forgive so-and-so. You don't have to go to them and tell them. You don't have to talk to them. This isn't, oh, I've got to go tell Richard how much I forgive him for what he did. Usually that's, there's something else involved in that. I'm going to tell you, I forgive you. Now, don't you want to apologize? (laughs) Don't you want to admit how wrong you were? No, it's just something, a declaration that you make that says, God, I choose now to forgive that person. I'm going to ask you if you'd stand. I only got you standing because I didn't want you to fall asleep. At this part, no. (laughs) I'm going to ask you if you would just bow your heads for a moment. Close your eyes. You don't have to, but it's just easier not to be distracted by other people. We're going to just take a moment and respond. Holy Spirit, you're the one who convicts. We realize that it's not a condemnation that comes from the enemy. But there's a conviction. There's a very specific thing where you say to us, this is sin. And Lord, would you just speak, Holy Spirit, right now. And we'll respond. Take a moment. If the Holy Spirit's identifying something, you don't have to beat yourself. You don't have to get down on yourself. You don't have to make a whip and hit yourself with it. You simply have to admit it and quit it.
if there's an attitude or something that the Holy Spirit's saying. If you don't want to flow in the anointing of the Spirit, you don't have to do any of this. If you're happy to be in bondage, stay there. But if you want to get free, respond to the Holy Spirit. Just do that now. We're not going to spend a long time on this part because it doesn't take long. Unless you've never repented and the Holy Spirit starts identifying everything you've ever done. I had a friend uh, who was healed of a uh, incredible heart condition that her family, her mother had died, her sister had died. She was hopeless. God touched her and radically healed her. And her sister was so amazed by the supernatural expression that she got saved. But she thought she was a good person. Her parents were Christians. She went to church. She thought she was good. The Holy Spirit came on her. And for half an hour, she laid on the floor and God just showed her the consequence of all of her sin. And she was, I mean, wept uncontrollably for half an hour. Woke up and said, Lord, you can never forgive me. I don't deserve forgiveness. Here she thought she was good. And the Holy Spirit showed her. That's hopefully what, not what we're talking about this morning. But if it is, let him respond. But, can I ask you, will you choose to forgive? See, the thing is, I don't have to convince you. I don't have to point out to you, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to point out to you where you've been the victim of someone else's sin. You know. In fact, you probably carry that with you all the time. You think about it. It's probably the first thing you think of in the morning and the last thing you think of at night. And it becomes a poison. Will you forgive? It's not easy. But the Holy Spirit will empower you. I'm going to ask you now with your head bowed, your eyes closed, if the Holy Spirit's speaking something to you, showing you a situation or a person that you've not forgiven, would you just declare that right now? I'm going to ask you to say it quietly, out, out loud. I choose to forgive this person now in the name of Jesus. The Lord set me free from the hurt of that, set me free from the connection to that, that I might be free to flow in the anointing of the Spirit. Lord, I believe that your desire for us as individuals and for us together as a church is an increased outpouring of your Spirit that impacts those that we know, our family, our friends, and the city and the state, and the nation, and that we've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And we say, Lord, we want to be those people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've not met Jesus, I'd love to introduce you to him.
I'm going to ask you as we're dismissed, if you just come here to the front, I would love to pray with you, introduce, introduce you to Jesus. If you need prayer for sickness or something, there would be some people who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, have some uh, coffee and tea and some fellowship, and let's continue in this journey over the next few weeks. I really am excited because I think we're going to see an increase and increase of the miraculous. As we were praying last week, Mary felt like God said something about redigging the wells of healing. I'm not sure when they were dug to redig, but I want to tell you there's an opposition in the spirit to a group of people doing that. There are some who have. There are some who have taken a stance. I know that Glenn has taken a stance in praying for, for healing. There's an opposition. Amen.